Um, some of you know that I kind of have nerded out on leather work uh, in the last year. The wallet in my pocket I made, the belt I'm wearing I made, the bag my wife has this morning I made. It's been sort of this obsession all of a sudden. And in most of the process of learning it, because I don't, I haven't really known anyone who's done leather work. I didn't have any tools. I didn't grow up with it. Is this magical thing called YouTube, right? And Instagram helps too. And the amazing thing, right, is that I can do some searches online and find leather workers from all over the world and uh, shortcut that whole process of learning because uh, there's a lot of folks that are free with the, the knowledge that they have. And I'm super thankful for that, right? How many of you have learned something in the last year or how to do something online by like Googling it or going to YouTube? Like it's just a thing that's become part of life, right? And I'm really thankful for that tool. You can learn to do just about anything. But I've also recognized there's a problem that comes with it, uh, especially when it comes to things like learning to do something you care about. You start watching these experts and, and a couple things start to happen. First of all, my expectations for myself seem to be a little unrealistic. Uh, one of the people, for example, I watch uh, pretty regularly, there's a term I've learned, atelier, has anyone, anyone, I'm probably butchering the French, but it's the idea of a, a master at a craft who teaches others. Um, there's a guy named Peter Nitz, he's in, in um, Switzerland, makes these, these bags that are literally perfect. Every stitch is exactly perfect. They're also insanely expensive. Um, but I watch him and then I look at what I make and I go, well, that's garbage, right? There's another guy in Montana that I watch who makes incredible boots and bags and all these things. And again, I, I learn from him, but at the same time I watch it and then my stuff looks kind of lame, right? Um, I forget that often you're just seeing the Instagram versions of what people do. You don't see all their mistakes. They just show you the stuff that went really well, right? That kind of happens. But secondly, um, as I watch these various craftspeople, um, I also see their workspaces and all their tools. And I will admit it's easy to start to covet a little bit, right? You see these glorious spaces that are well lit and filled with all these tools I'll probably never afford. And I, you know, I just start to daydream about how amazing it would be to have a leather splitter or a clicker press or all these other things that you probably don't care anything about um, because it would make it easier, right? If I watch too much of this stuff, it very quickly goes from being helpful um, to almost be, being paralyzing, right? In a similar way, when I was in high school, I loved playing guitar. And I worked every single day to get better at playing guitar. And then I went and saw this guy, Phil Kagey, in concert. And I wanted to throw my guitar away. Like, he was so good. He is still so good. I, I can never, ever attain what he does. And so sometimes, you know, we see greatness at something we care about, and it's almost paralyzing. It's like... Why bother? Anybody ever feel that? A few of you do? Good, I'm not alone. I think most of us, whether you raise your hand or not, probably relate to that, whether it's cooking or working with wood or computers or music or sports, whatever. We always can find someone who's way better than we are and who has tools that we don't possess. And it makes it easy sometimes to want to just throw in the towel or not try because of that disparity we see between where we are and where we perceive others are. And what I found as a pastor is that this same phenomenon, this same feeling is also quite common when it comes to uh, our faith. We can look around 
And we see people who seem far more spiritually mature than we are. We see the Billy Grahams and the Luis Palau's who are traveling the globe and thousands of people are coming to Christ. Or we see those who go to third world countries and start orphanages and do all these amazing things. Or maybe we just see people and they don't seem to be struggling with the things we do. And we might even start to think that we don't have the tools we need and we don't have whatever quality is in that person. And we'll never have it. And in a sense that sometimes I feel like a total hack working with leather, spiritually I see a lot of folks that start to think that way about themselves. You know, I'm just sort of this Jesus-following hack. And I think that's behind the phrase that's often used um, when people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Maybe you've used that phrase. There's a truth to that and that, like, I haven't done anything to, to merit God's love. I'm saved by grace. But the way we use that phrase is really the focus is on, oh, I'm just a sinner and I'm saved by grace. But it, it's sort of this throwing in the towel almost, you know, the, the lowered expectations. I'm pretty convinced this is how Peter felt uh, when he comes to Jesus. I, I think Peter felt like a hack when it comes to spiritual things. We find this scene in Luke chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there with me. And, and I want you to understand and, and try to enter into the story because maybe it's familiar enough that, that we get inoculated to it. But Peter has spent the entire night fishing. That's what he does for a living. He's been fishing on the fishing grounds that he knows quite well. And he hasn't caught anything. He's with his coworkers, his companions. They've been working all night home all night, and they come back home empty. I would imagine they were like us. They were probably grumbling, probably frustrated, maybe chewing on each other or blaming each other. I don't know. But it probably wasn't a great feeling. And there they are. We find them on the shore doing the, the part of fishing that is no fun. They're sitting there cleaning and mending and sorting their nets, right? Not a lot of people go, I'm going to go out and clean nets. Usually it's more, I'm going to go out and go fishing, right? They aren't in their Sunday best. I'm sure they're dirty. They probably stink. They're tired. And so this crowd begins to build on shore because Jesus has come and, and they've come to listen to this great teacher. I would imagine as Peter and his companions look to the crowd, they probably see some people that to them represent the experts of being religious. The people who have it together. Maybe it's some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees who seem to follow Jesus around as he's teaching, but, but they see in that crowd people that they're not like. And maybe there's folks looking down on them because of what they do and how they look. And so this surprising thing happens. Again, this is Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Oh, we read that one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, by the way, this is the same uh, body of water as what's called the Sea of Galilee. It has a couple different names. Uh, the people were, were crowding around Jesus and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats. They're left by the fishermen who are washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, if the story stops there, just if you can imagine this, I think it was probably awkward. There's this whole crowd. They see that there's no fish in their boats. They see that they came up empty. They see him as tired. Here comes Jesus. He asks to get in their boat of all boats. And suddenly 
Here's Peter, a little offshore on this boat, uh, assumedly so Jesus could address this crowd. It's a little distance. There he is. They're probably not a long ways out because uh, they can hear him. And here's Peter with Jesus in the boat, with everyone looking at them as Jesus speaks. I think that was probably a bit awkward. And so Jesus finishes teaching. And by the way, there's nothing in the text to suggest that the crowd dispersed or went away. Uh, They're likely still hanging around because they seem to do that. They wanted to see where Jesus would go next and continue to watch and hear uh, what he said and did. And so Jesus asked Simon Peter to do something. And perhaps you're familiar with the story. We continue in verse 4. And we read, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, if you can picture this. This probably isn't all positive excitement at this point. It's probably a bit of a crisis. Their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. I hope you can picture that. That's quite a scene. By the way, the fishing boats that they used in those days were about 19, 20 foot long. So we're talking about a lot of fish here. Suddenly there's yelling, there's excitement, there's shock. Of course, there's a whole bunch of fish to handle. In fact, so many fish, their boats are now full. They're surrounded by fish. They certainly now smell like fish, right? They're probably pretty gross. And this Jesus is beyond words. He's not only apparently an expert at catching fish, this is miraculous. And so Peter is not only surrounded by all of these fish and probably still a crowd on shore, but here he is face to face with Jesus. And what he says next really shows us how he felt about himself. I would say he felt like a hack when it comes to spiritual things. I mean, the response isn't what you expect. You expect hooting and hollering and high-fiving and and celebration and and all of this. Peter isn't hugging Jesus. He's What do we see? In verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. He said, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners, and a couple future disciples. But this response of, get away from me, Lord, go away, I'm a sinful man. I don't know about you, but I've had moments where that echoes in my life, where I have felt that way in my prayers. But what does Jesus say? You say, ah, Pete, you aren't that bad. If you try really hard, you've got something we can work with here. Or I get it, that's cool, we can't all be great. No, actually what Jesus says is astonishing. He says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. Interesting phrase. So they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything and followed him. It's quite a scene. Don't be afraid. I'm going to transform you into something that's completely new. I would imagine to Peter this idea of fishing for men or even following in the footsteps of Jesus, felt as likely as him performing a miracle. just seemed completely out of reach. 
But friends, from the beginning, the invitation that Jesus gives is one of transformation. Consistently. It's not just believing. It's one of following and being changed. In fact, I would sum up much of Jesus' interaction uh, with this phrase. Come as you are. So however you are, come. If you're stinky and you're dirty and you're questioning like Peter, still come. But consistently, the, the message is don't stay that way. Following me, you are going to become something different. Again, this isn't just about working harder, but this change comes as we follow Jesus. The same Jesus that can make fishermen catch fish can do similarly impossible things in you and me. That is the gospel message. In a later writing to the Corinthian church, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, and maybe you know this verse, this is one that's commonly memorized. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Soak that in for a second. The idea is that if you are in Christ or if I'm in Christ, we aren't who we were anymore. Something has gone, something brand new has come and replaced it. We aren't just sinners saved by grace, but in Christ, in fact, we're transformed and we're in this process of being made into his likeness. We're something new, something that we were not before Christ came in the picture. Now to the Colossians, Paul writes that there's now this mystery within us he speaks of. And that mystery is Christ in us, the hope of glory. There's something new, there's something can't quite put words to it, but it's different. Paul writes, not that we're a little bit better now. But rather, he says, we were dead in our sins. But we've, made, we've been made alive in Christ. There is something brand new within us as followers of Jesus. In fact, to the Galatian church, Paul says it this way. This is Galatians 2.20. He writes, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The idea is who I was is gone. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, it isn't just I'm a little bit better or I'm a bit less of a sinner, but rather what I was is gone altogether. And in Christ, I am now living a different life. Now, does that mean we're perfect? Certainly Paul wasn't. Certainly Peter wasn't. You look at the journey of Peter following Jesus. He, we know some of those moments he denies Jesus three times. He cuts off a guy's ear. At one point Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. That's kind of extreme. But even through all these fallings, he's never that same fisherman again. Jesus is in this process of making him into something altogether new. In fact, it's this Peter who was once this fisherman with no fish to show who becomes a leader of Jesus' church. It's an amazing transformation. I love watching Peter's life in the Gospels because he, he puts his foot in his mouth pretty regularly. He seems to act without thinking sometimes, and I think I kind of resonate with that a bit more than I want to. But it's the same Peter who writes what I would suggest is possibly one of the most difficult-to-believe statements in the New Testament. It's an explanation of the miraculous transformation that happens within us when, when, when we are in Christ. I'd invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages. 
And I want to consider this together. Uh, it's a rather long, wordy statement, but it's worth the effort, okay? Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read, His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. Just hear that again. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. And through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This once fisherman, once stumbling follower of Jesus himself, writes that through God's power and through our knowledge of Jesus, we have everything we need already to live a godly life. Even more, he writes, we now have the power to participate in the things of God and to escape the corruption that once held us. I just wonder this morning, do you believe you have that capacity? Do you believe you have the ability to partner with God in the very things of God? Do you actually believe that in Christ you have the ability to overcome sin and its corrupting power in your life? I mean, do you believe you have what it takes to live a truly godly life? I mean, Peter writes quite plainly this is the case. This is his declaration, his claim. And I think if we're honest, we don't always live like we believe this. In fact, I think that's kind of behind that phrase, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. We forget this is true. I would imagine this morning there may be here some who feel a lot more like that scared fisherman warning Jesus away than someone who has the ability to look like this. Now, if we go back to that fishing scene, I want to note something that I find quite important. Jesus doesn't just fill the boat with fish. I mean, think about this for a second. If the Jesus of the Gospels is... Real, this is a Jesus who can calm storms with the word. This is a Jesus who can raise the dead, who can feed thousands. But Jesus doesn't just fill the boat. What does he do? He he empowers these people to catch fish. He doesn't just have all the fish jumping out of the lake to show off. No, he, he empowers them to catch these fish. They are to follow his lead and they participate by lowering their nets where he says to. They still have to pull them in. They still have to get back to shore. But Jesus works through them rather than for them. It doesn't make it any less miraculous. But I think it's worth noting that Jesus could have worked apart from them, but in fact works through them as they follow his lead and his his guidance. He doesn't just do it for them. He works a miracle through them. By the way, he does the same thing in the feeding of the the thousands. If you pay attention to that story, Jesus doesn't just go feed everybody as his disciples do it. He has them a part of the whole process. In fact, he even allows them to be a place of asking the question of like, what are we supposed to do? We're at our end, basically. And then he has them participate in this miracle. Jesus seems to work that way. Now, I believe... 
What Peter writes of here is is nothing short of miraculous. This idea that in Christ, you and I are actually given the capacity, the ability to live godly lives. That you and I are able to participate in the very things of God with God. That's miraculous. The idea that in Christ, you and I actually have the capacity and ability to escape the things that have entrapped us, the sins that catch us. I don't think that's any less miraculous than a bunch of fish being caught or a bunch of people being fed. But I would point out that God doesn't just do that for us. He does that through us, through our transformed lives in Christ. I imagine it as though God filled my leather shop with every tool I could want, gives me the know-how to create anything, but it only works if I follow His lead. And I do as He directs. You and I have nothing less than completely transformed lives and abilities in Christ as we follow His lead. The Scriptures are clear on this. Now Peter goes on to flesh this idea out for us. How does he continue in this amazing declaration that in Christ we have everything we need to live godly lives, to participate in the things of God and to escape, escape sin? Well, look with me. This is Second Peter Chapter 1 again, picking up in verse 9. He's just made this declaration, right? This amazing statement. And he continues this way. For this very reason, or because of this, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection. It's also called brotherly love. And then to mutual affection, love. And that word for love is the word agape, which is this idea of a love that gives itself away. He says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite a promise. right? By the way, he doesn't say if you have them in totality. He says if they're increasing, this is the case. It's not a finish line we get to. It's a, it's a process that happens through our lives. But on the flip side, verse 9, he says, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. So Zoe's he's saying, God has given you the full tool set and the abilities. It's time to put it to work. It's time to, to, to focus on this. And so this list, I want to go through this quickly because I actually believe these sort of build on each other. It makes a lot of sense. He begins with adding to your faith goodness, or, or some of your translations have virtue. The idea is actually doing, having the courage to do what's right. It's not just doing the right thing. It's, it's the idea of actually having the courage to make the right choice and do the hard thing. And then as you grow in your goodness, to add to that knowledge, the idea here isn't academics. It's a practice knowledge. It's, we might say experience. It's, it's fleshing it out. And then to goodness and knowledge comes self-control. By the way, self-control is built on knowledge. You only stop eating ice cream when you find out it's bad for you. You need that knowledge. Otherwise, you're just going to keep on eating it, right? Until, if you're me anyway, until you get sick. Knowledge changes behavior. Knowledge is the base of self-control quite often. Self-control is what it sounds like. It's the ability to wait is really what it is. 
It's, it's the faith that if I wait, good things will still come. And I don't need to chase them in the wrong way now. So then to self-control perseverance, which by the way, perseverance is self-control practice over and over and over and over and over and over. That's all it is. You develop it by practicing self-control and, and at some point that turns into perseverance. And he says to add to perseverance godliness and the idea of this word is that we're living in such a way that we're at the same time worshiping God and placing God first and also serving others and honoring them. That's actually the full picture here. And we'd point out this isn't the starting point. This is the logical next step from self-control and perseverance, which come from godliness and knowledge, or goodness and knowledge, I should say. And then from that comes the mutual affection, which leads to a Christ-like love. And the end point of this progression is this love. I would argue that Christ-like love is actually what it looks like to participate in the divine nature. When we practice that Christ-like love, we find ourselves doing the things of God with God. And that's where Peter's calling us to be. That's where we're headed to. Peter calls us to a great commitment to lavishly provide for the growth of our faith, to cooperate with God in growing more like Jesus. You might say to pull up the nets. But the fish are there. The, the miracle is taking place. But there's some work in pulling up the nets, right? And there's this two-way promise. On the one hand, if we're growing in these things, if they're increasing, this will cause us to live effective and productive lives in Christ. Lives that make a difference. Lives that impact the kingdom. But on the flip side, if this isn't happening, it leads to a life where we forget we've even been forgiven and we struggle wondering, does God really love me? Am I really too much of a sinner? This is the same idea we find Paul writing about in Philippians 2. When in the same breath, Paul says that God is at work within us working out our salvation, but we're also supposed to be at work with Him, partnering with Him. I've come to believe these promises are absolutely true, but they don't come without effort. Jesus doesn't just do them for us. He does them through us and with us. And in fact, these promises are what fuel our effort when we understand them and believe them. And I think sometimes we shortchange the whole process and we don't end up putting out the effort because we just see ourselves as hacks. We're just sinners saved by grace. Why bother? I'm never really going to become that person. I think sometimes we live as though this just isn't true. In Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are not what you once were. In Christ, you have a new capacity and ability. I'm a new creation. You're a new creation. And when we, by faith, live as though this is true, when we live in the joy of that reality, I think it leads to making that effort. It fuels that desire to want to grow, to want to participate in the things of God. To want to be further transformed by God's power at work. Again, it's Jesus who 
brings the fish, right? But he does it by calling us to lower his nets and follow his lead. We're active participants. The fish are there, but we have to believe it enough to take the boat out where he says and lower the net. And so I, I wonder this morning. Oh, they're up there. Thank you. I just made them go away. <laughs> Rick gets ahead of me, and I don't realize you're, you're on top of it. Can you bring those back up? These, these things, they're actually, they should probably be flipped upside down because they kind of build on each other. But when you think about these goodness, virtue, the, power, the, the courage to do something right, to, to do the right thing, to not get swept into what we know we shouldn't. Knowledge, that experience of really practicing that goodness, of following the lead of Christ, of getting to know who Jesus is. Self-control, which is just what it sounds like. Perseverance, which is self-control practiced again and again and again. And godliness, which is this life of, of constantly worshiping God and serving people. Mutual affection, valuing people, caring for one another, giving to one another. That Christ-like love. Like, I wonder where in that sort of progression you most see a need for growth. I think this morning Jesus says to each of us, come just as you are, but don't stay that way. That's not what I created you for. The amazing thing is that the same Jesus who gives us the power, who works through us to make the change follow or possible, the same Jesus who worked miracles does that sort of thing when we follow his lead step by step and day by day. I want to invite you to consider what it would look like to make every effort to add to your faith this week. Now, those of you who've been tracking with us, our community groups have been going through this book, The Good and Beautiful God. And last week, our soul training challenge was to read through the book of John. And you might remember I suggested last Sunday, um, if that's a difficult thing, listen through the book of John. I actually did that this week. Um, I've told a few of you, I found something online. You may not like it at all. I found it really compelling. It's called Streetlights, if you want to look it up. It's a group from Chicago who uh, read the scriptures with like a backbeat, almost like you're familiar with sort of house music behind it. Um, it's really great while you drive. Um, two hours I listened through the book of John and, and heard it in a new way. God spoke through it. It's amazing how God does that. I encourage you, if that's not something you did this last week, um, whether it's reading or listening, soak in the gospel of John. But this week, the soul training that we're going to be working on in this next chapter is spending time in solitude, considering who we are in Christ, and listening for His lead. I think that's what making the effort looks like. It's not just trying harder. It's listening to the lead of Christ and acting on what we hear. I want to invite you to revisit that passage in Second Peter this week and wrestle with, do I really believe this? Do I really believe this is who I am in Christ? And if you don't ask for the faith to believe in it and start acting on it, let's pray. Father, we ask you to be at work within us. We thank you that it's you who brings a change 
and yet you invite us to participate in the process. We ask that you would make us more fully into people who resemble Jesus, people who reflect your love and your goodness. We ask for the desire to make every effort to add to our faith. But we ask that that desire would come not from striving or earning, but from joyfully realizing what you've done in our lives already. Would you make us more like Jesus? We ask. Amen.